I want to talk a little bit about gangs. Uh, when you hear the word gang, uh, what comes to mind? So, something good, something bad? Yeah, usually, usually something bad. And yet, when I was a kid, I would, I, there was uh, that group of funny little people called our gang. And I don't, I really, I don't see anybody else resonating with that. Uh, I used to lie in bed and uh, and listen to gangbusters. Now we got ghostbusters. See, you know, there were gangbusters in my day. You don't understand that either, the Roberts. Hail, hail, the gang's all here. The title of this message is, Hey gang, let's get it going. Hmm. Yes, there are serious gang problems in Los Angeles. My son, our son Christopher, uh, taught in the Christian school and was reading something somewhere about uh, L.A. gangs having invaded San Diego public schools. Have you read about the Blades and the Crips? Two. You mean that was an O instead of an A? No, no, my newspaper, well, it was, a, it was a misprint in the San Diego Union then because it was, B, it was either B-L-O-D-E-S or B-L-A-D-E-S. But you guys know. I will yield to you. See, I, I know that you know. Yeah, yeah. And they're all, you know, they, they have uh, put down their weapons of warfare. They've declared unity. And they're all real happy now over Willie Wilson because Willie Wilson is going to bring the peace that has uh, eluded, that has not come to Los Angeles. Uh, what about the title of this talk? Hey, gang, let's get it going. Are these words all right? Are you offended by them? I hope not. Because the word gang of itself is not necessarily a bad word. In fact, if you look it up in the original facsimile of the Webster's Dictionary, which is a book that I like, we read something to the effect that a gang is a group of people associated together for a particular task. So the issue, in a sense, is what is the action? What the action is? What is the it? Hey, gang, let's get it going. What is the it? So if you knew that, if you understood what I was talking about and willing to apply it, I could sit down and we'd be all finished. But I have to do some explaining. So these are, are good, these are good words when properly understood and spoken in the right setting. Now, I want us this evening to turn to several portions of Scripture to get some pictures of gang activity that will help us right here to get it going. And it's organized under those three massive, impressive main points that you have in your outline. Never more than three, usually two main points. That's the way I, I go. First of all, I want us to look at a couple of bad gangs engaged in bad activity. And you don't even need to turn to Psalm 2, but you're welcome to do that. It's a familiar portion of Scripture, I, I think. Here you have some big people, really big people with a lot of clout. These are the kings of the earth that are ganged together. 
and they're exercising their God-given power and authority to do the impossible. What is that? The impossible is to be absolutely free from God. We don't want God to have anything to do with our lives anymore. So let's get it going, they say, and they band together to break the tie that they have to God. God's response, remember what it is? He laughs. And that is a terrible kind of laugh because he laughs in derision. That's a, that's a scary laugh because in the, in the next verses, in the middle of the psalm, we see the king of his, of his appointment established on the throne of the universe and then it talks about crushing these people like a piece of, like, like a clay pot hitting it with an iron rod and it, it's broken in thousands of little pieces. Wow. And then also there comes the, the command, the invitation to repent. Listen, you kings of the earth, kiss the sun, bow down and kiss the sun, lest he really be angry and you perish, you're destroyed. Now, this particular picture is transposed to the early church. It was really by the early church to make it to apply what Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the Jews did to Jesus. Let us be free of him. Let's get it going, gang. And so they put Jesus to death. God weeps, but also God laughs. And God raises Jesus from the dead. And that becomes a message that sounds again and again throughout the book of Acts. You, by wicked hands, put him to death. But God overturned your bad doing and raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest throne of the universe. And then he sends his gospel, the good news. We're going to get back to that picture in Acts 4 a little bit later. But I want you to see another game. Turn to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. The great Baptist preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon has a children's sermon. It's, uh, it, it's really a magnificent uh, work of art. It's a children's sermon based on this text. And here is the text. It's all about Elisha and some teenagers. This is uh, 2 Kings chapter 2. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 23. And from there Elisha went up to Bethel. That word Bethel means the house of God. And as he was walking along the road, some youths came out of the town and jeered at him. Go on up, you bald head. Go on up, you bald head. Elisha turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And then two bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. And Elijah went on somewhere else. Now, isn't that an interesting children's sermon? Yeah. I mean, who says that 
you know, God doesn't send bears to eat up naughty children. You know, that, that we're always guilty of moralizing if we say something like that. It just depends on the context. It depends who the children are. Beware if you are a covenant child. Because these were covenant, these were covenant children. Hey gang, let's get it going. Right here in Bethel. Wow, Bethel was the headquarters for the rebellion against God. It had a long history of rebellion. That's where Jeroboam set up some of his golden calves and made it a seat of false worship. And so undoubtedly, these teenagers were reflecting the mindset of their parents. What they're really saying is, uh, get out of here. Go up. Do what Elisha did. Uh, go up in a, a flame, of a ball of fire. Let's see you get out of here in a chariot. We don't want anything to do with you. Get out of here. All oh, boys will be boys, right? God sees it differently. But no way would you ever find Orthodox Presbyterian teenagers engaging in, in any behavior like that because they always show respect for parents and teachers and, and pastors. You'd never find them in a, in a meeting uh, where the Word of God is being preached and thinking to themselves, well, let's get him finished. Let's get the preacher finished so we can get out of here and go do our own thing and what we really want to do. No, never. Not Orthodox Presbyterian young people. But God searches all of our hearts. Now, let's change the picture just a little bit. Uh, this would fall under the second point in your outline. I didn't know whether to call this a good gang or a relatively good gang, but uh, let's call it a good gang and an activity that looks so good. A picture of a covenant family in the days of Jeremiah and good king Josiah as they worked together and God used them to bring about a measure of, of reform. It was more outward change. And the outward change was, was significant. All of the garbage, all of the, the filthiness associated with heathen religion was cleaned up. So at least the outside of the, of the cup uh, looked pretty good. Jeremiah chapter 7, and uh, those of you from Point Loma, you just have to bear with me because I've been preaching through the book of Jeremiah, but not much Jeremiah tonight, just this little bit. Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 17 and 18. Did I turn my machine on? I am a mechanical idiot. I'm all right? Good. Londa, I did it. Okay. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 17. Here is a picture of a covenant family. That's what most of us right here are. Uh, in the larger setting, we're a covenant family. We dwell in, in covenant families. We love that word covenant. We have it in, as, uh, in the name of our churches. We... Uh, Make it the name of schools. It's a word that occurs many, many times in Scripture. The covenant, the covenant. We dwell in covenant homes. Ah, here is a picture of a covenant home. And so we look at chapter 7, uh, verse 17. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem? Ah, let's see what they're doing. Get this picture. The children gather wood. The fathers light the fire. And the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread. 
beautiful. We love it, don't we? Look at the oneness there. If you ever had a picture of a wholesome family activity, this is it. There's a proper division of labor. There's no murmuring. There's no grumbling. Uh, The parents aren't screaming at the children and the children aren't going out and mumbling under their breath, hating every minute of this. What What a picture. This is worthy of a new billboard slogan. Can you see this in big letters? The family that bakes together stays together. Who can find fault with this? No one, if man's chief end is to dwell happily together as a gang. If happiness and unity is the chief end of man, then there's nothing wrong with this picture. But notice the verse and the text go on, picking it up where I left off, where it says they make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Hot cross buns to a gross object of their worship. The queen of heaven, part of the panoply of the gods of Canaan. Yet, as Debbie Boone sang a few years back, it can't be wrong because it feels so right, and this can't be wrong because it looks so right, and millions of Americans would agree. Uh, I'm sure thousands of uh, 12-step group leaders would agree They would say something to the the effect, hey, so long as it works, so long as it gets the job done, what difference does it make if we uh, have an ill-defined or a differently defined God? So long as it works. Jesus couldn't disagree more. You remember Jesus' words about family and family unity? He didn't exalt that. He didn't make that the chief end. The chief end of man is himself in loving him and serving him. And if it comes to these two choices of having some family disunity, if that's the price that's involved in loving him and serving him, then you're going to have to face that family disunity. Hey gang, let's get it going. David and Clarissa, you gather the wood. I'll chop it. No, I realize I wouldn't chop it, Londa. Uh, I'll chop it. And, uh, Mom, you get the fire going and knead the dough and, and we'll make those hot cross buns to the New Age God. You know, what was so appealing about the Canaanite gods and all their ugliness? I tried to figure this out and then I read this in the commentary just the other day. And it makes sense from a godless viewpoint. The gods, it it was widely believed by the peoples of Canaan that the gods of Canaan, the the gods of nature, the god of fertility, the god of, of grain, the god of the water and the sky and all that kind of stuff, that these gods would stick by you no matter what. They would stay with you no matter what. 
they would be faithful to you apart from any concept of covenantal obedience. Ah, that is appealing. Because the people of Israel knew that generally speaking, this is the matter of the sanctions of the covenant, that, that the blessings are tied to at least purposeful, obedient living. And when there isn't purposeful, obedient living, when there is purposeful, disobedient living, you can expect discipline. But the gods of the Canaan, Canaanites, it was believed, would deliver, and they would always deliver, irrespective of any obedience on the part of those who follow them. Well, it's time we move on to our third main point, if we can call it that. These are kind of funny main points. The right kind of gang involved in the right kind of activity. Now, I want to change that just a little bit. I, I want to make it to be the most, the most needful activity right now in our lives, and I believe in the history uh, of our church. Now, that's a sweeping kind of claim to make. The most needful kind of right type activity. Dr. Luke, who is author of the third gospel in the book of Acts, will introduce the subject. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 53. Luke 24. Verse 45, let's see here. Okay. Then Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. And repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. And when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. And then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. Stay in the city, Jesus says, until you have been clothed with power on high. They obeyed. They obeyed. And for a powerful picture of their obedience, now turn to Acts chapter 1. Just a couple of verses. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount, from the hill called the Mount of Olives, the Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were, where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Underscore that. Along with the women. I found it interesting, Raleigh, that you asked my wife to pray. We may make her the first discipline test case yet in the OPC. 
along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers, constantly together in prayer. About ten days later comes the day of Pentecost. How did that day begin? Take a look at Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Uh, One Christian leader refers to this as a miracle in itself to envision a group of Christians uh, all together in one place. Actually, he was commenting on the words as they appeared in the old King James version of it. They were of all of one accord. To have a group of Christians uh, all of one accord. Well, here we are. How many are there in this room? More than 120, right? Am I correct in that? Close? Close, okay. I believe that these people were gathered together, engaged in the most significant activity that they could be doing. They were engaged in continual prayer. Now, the book of Acts is the history of the, really the history of the acts of the risen Jesus as he directs his ever-enlarging church and family in the earth, the Holy Spirit moving it according to the itinerary that was given in Acts 1.8, beginning at Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the utmost parts of the earth. It's one of the most exciting books in all of the Word of God. And I agree with those Bible teachers who, who state, who argue, who say with conviction that the definitive meeting, the gang that gathers together in the book of Acts, is the gang that gathers together for prayer. The definitive meeting in the book of Acts is the prayer meeting. The church moves forward on the wings of prayer. As the prayers go up, the blessings come down. And to use uh, Eugene Peterson's phrase, he, in fact, he has a book of, uh, entitled, his commentary on the book of Revelation called Reverse Thunder. There's silence in heaven for about a half hour, and the prayers of the saints ascend on incense as incense, and then, after that silence, then God hurls them down to earth in dramatic activity. That in response to the prayers of God's people. Now, just one more passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 4. And this is where the early church took that second psalm and referred it to contemporary events surrounding the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Let's begin, well, Acts chapter 4, and we'll read beginning at verse 23. But in the background, Peter and John, as a result of of healing a crippled beggar in the name of Jesus, they are arrested, and they are brought before the ruling religious council. And they are beaten up with words by the religious authorities. They are told, don't preach in this man's name. Don't 
preach in the name of Jesus. Of course, they couldn't comply with that. They couldn't go along with it. And they refused to do that. And so they're beaten up some more with words, and then they are released, and then they go to a meeting that looks very much like a prayer meeting, or if it were not initially a prayer meeting, it becomes a prayer meeting. The prayer meeting, the definitive meeting in the book of Acts. All right? So they go back to their own people, verse 23, and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, despota is the word. We get the word despot from it, but it didn't have that evil connotation. It simply means sovereign, one who is in total control. You made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage? Ah, the the second psalm now. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth uh, take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable, there's the power word, empower, empower your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all of them, and spoke the word of God boldly. And then you see dynamic Christian living in the subsequent verses. Much of the love of Christ flowing out of their hearts, the way they give to each other, and the way they give out the gospel. No wonder this early gang of Christians was devoted to prayer. How do I know that? Because the Word of God tells me that in the same book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 42. Now, they're devoted to other things, like the apostolic teaching and to the breaking of bread, but it says that they were devoted to prayer. Application. As Orthodox Presbyterians, we do a lot of things right by God's grace. We know a lot of truth. Ask the typical Orthodox Presbyterian what are the means of grace, and he or she will answer the word, sacraments, and prayer. But I honestly believe that the means of grace we employ and enjoy the least of all is prayer. And if I'm correct, this has to be the most stupid anti-intellectual, the most perplexing and inconsistent thing that I can possibly imagine. Why? Because our theology, our belief system, more than any other theology, is calculated to bring us, to drive us to our knees in prayer, to bring us right to the throne of grace in heaven. 
I want some one-word answers here from you. These are real questions. Who saves sinners? One word. Who changes lives? Who sanctifies us? This is a tougher question. By ourselves, what are we capable of doing that is good? Okay. See, like I said, Orthodox Presbyterians have the right answers. Okay. Now, we are totally dependent upon God. And yet God says, you don't have because you don't ask. Why is it that we are so little enthused about prayer? You want some evidence of that? Do I have to establish that? Just look at your own church life. Look at your own family devotion life. Look at our church meetings, our retreats, our advances, whether they're men's retreats or women's retreats. Roman Catholics, for all of their terrible theology, historically, have retreated unto much more unto prayer and meditation. We retreat to eat and to study. I mean, I, I really think that that's the emphasis in our retreats. We retreat to study and to eat. <laughs> now, even if you wish to argue that individually or familially or as congregations you have much and we have been much blessed and I don't want to argue that, well, I, my response is simply this. There is still so much that we don't have or there is so much more that we could have. Surely we all know some hot cross bun families that are in the grips of false gods. I know that you know such families. In each of our congregations, I'm probably correct in saying there are spouses, husbands and wives who, who continue in an unsaved state and maybe for many, many years. How about children in rebellion? If not in total rebellion, at least disinterested, terribly disinterested in the things of God. What about those idols that go undisturbed, even unidentified? How is it we, in fact, can devote far more time and energy and enthusiasm to our TV shows than the Bible, reading it, meditating upon it, talking about it, and not see this as idolatry. Where is our daily repentance? Where is the power on high? We harbor resentments, anger, and so often do nothing about it. Many of us continue relatively unmoved from the preaching and teaching beyond, oh, good lesson, teacher. 
Nice sermon, Pastor. Visitors come and go in our churches, don't they? Many of them, perhaps most of them, not to return. Well, that's life at the end of the 20th century, you know, the hardness of hearts. Well, and I guess so is certain congregations and pastors not liking other congregations and pastors. You know, it's, it's much easier to keep bringing complaints than to humbly fall on our knees before God and allow love to cover a multitude of sins. The other day, one of our more direct speaking members uh, handed me uh, an issue of Life magazine and said, read it. That's the way she causes my heart to palpitate again and again. She's always breaking in on me with something like that, you know. Pastor, read it! And I snapped to attention. <laughs> the one article in particular that she wanted me to read was about the Amish people in Pennsylvania. Uh, their community, many of their barns had been burned to the ground. I don't know, maybe you saw that article. Arson, evildoers, burned their barns to the ground. But, talk about a gang, gang activity. They banded together. They made sacrifices. They worked hard. They rebuilt all those barns. So impressive that uh, not only the, one of the editors of Life magazine came out and did this article, but actually people in the surrounding communities, not even Christians, uh, came there and pitched in and helped. A tremendous, tremendous demonstration of the love of Christ in their hearts. Well, all of that was impressive to me, but it didn't bowl me over. What bowled me over was something that I, I saw in that article. And it was this. One sentence. Having to do with the Amish attitude towards their enemies. What would their attitude be towards those who had burned down their barns? These words, and I've written them down carefully, in fact, I've even written them in one of the Psalms, the margin of my Bible, by a particular Psalm. Quote, They forget, they forgive, and they don't press charges. Wow! I mean, that just bowled me right off my feet. They forget, they forgive, and they don't press charges. Too often we say we forgive, but we don't forget. And so we don't really forgive, and then we go on to press charges. And I can't help but believe that what's behind this is what Pastor Needham was talking about this morning, pride. He talked about a lot of other really positive things, but he did make that point, that pride could well be a problem that some of us here in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I would say pride and arrogance. Wouldn't that be some banner hanging from our churches? We could maybe shorten it and put it in the proper order. Forgive, forget, and don't press charges. And just let it hang in all of our churches. There's so much, so much to pray about. Jesus, 
as he was approaching those hours of his extremity, he was, he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he turned to his disciples and said, can't you pray with me one hour? We have difficulty praying one hour. The disciples didn't make it. And yet we can find a dear woman by the name of Anna who recognized that there is enough in all of this world that you could pray without ceasing. And she continued praying in the temple endlessly. Maybe what we need to pray for, among other things, is for God to raise up some widows, an order of widows, who will just devote themselves constantly to pray, and then we can sit at their feet and learn from them. So much to pray about. It's, it's with this thought in mind that the elders of New Life OPC in Point Loma have set aside five Thursdays of this month. There are five Thursdays in July as special prayer meeting nights. We, we don't have a prayer meeting. Uh, we don't usually have one in the summertime. Five Thursday nights set aside for prayer because we've got people out of work. We have marriages in trouble. One in particular in just horrendous difficulty. We're moving towards charges. We really don't enjoy pressing charges, but sometimes you just have to do it. There are more than a few lives that need to be changed. And yes, there is an ice house in La Mesa at the intersection of Interstate 8 and Lake Murray Boulevard. One exit removed from San Diego State University. And we want to see that ice house transformed into a city on a hill. To go from being ensconced at the end of a freeway where nobody even knows where we are. I should, that's hyperbole. But I exercise next door at the YMCA. I've done that for three years. I talk to a lot of people. I pass out literature. I invite the people at the desk Christmas and Easter, and they, they look at me puzzled. I didn't know that there was a Presbyterian church next door. I thought it was a Seventh-day Adventist church after three years. To remove ourselves from that by God's grace and to see ourselves settled as a light on a hill. I'm scared. I ask you to pray. We have a congregational meeting, a corporation meeting coming up Wednesday, July 22nd. And well, why are you so scared, Pastor Maladin? Because of the future. Shame on you. Uh, yes, we have the money to buy it. We can put on the table $1,012,000 for this building that some years ago had a price tag of $3 million on it. But it, it may cost us $750,000, $800,000 to refurbish it. And we have very, very little money to do that. Can we really go ahead and trust God to supply the money for the refurbishing? Pastor Schroeder and I and others are saying yes. But that's not to say that we're not scared. 
And we want, we want the congregation to follow us because we think this is the right thing to do. We also have adopted a theme verse in conjunction with my preaching on Jeremiah. The theme verse is from Isaiah 62, Isaiah 62, 6 and 7. God says, through his prophet Isaiah, give yourself no rest until, and he says, give me no rest. That's God saying, don't give me any rest until I establish Jerusalem, that is the people of God, and make her to be a praise in the earth. We think much, much too small. Do you hear what God is saying there? Give yourselves no rest. Give me no rest. In other words, we can keep harping on this. God wants to hear this over and over again. And that fits in with Jesus' teaching on importunity in prayer. Say, oh, well, God heard me the first time. I prayed this two days ago. God says, give me no rest until I establish the people of God and make her a praise in the earth. Hey, gang, let's get it going. Let's get it going down the mountain, in your homes, in your churches. Let's get it going right here in this room. We recognize that with all the small children, we, we, we don't expect everybody to be here at 7.15 in the morning. But I think it's reasonable to expect that there could be some more people here tomorrow morning at 7.15 as we seek to get it going in prayer. The right kind of gang engaged in the right, no, I think for the critical days that are here, the best kind of activity. Let's pray. Father, search our hearts. We know that no preacher, no teacher, no one of us individually can create a soul thirst for prayer. Left to ourselves, if our natural inclination is to read books, we'll read books all the rest of our lives and we won't change one iota with respect to having a heart for prayer. Oh God, help us to maintain the proper balances, the scriptural proportions, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, to be devoted to the breaking of bread, to be devoted to the fellowship, one another, and to be devoted to prayer. Please grant it, Lord, because we want to see your church for whom Jesus shed his blood, made to be the praise of the earth. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.